Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For 2023, the Thrift Savings Plan had a pretty successful year, setting new records for total assets, number of participants receiving a full match, and a few other things. Not to mention, the number of TSP millionaires is up sharply. For more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman and I sat down with the Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, Kim Weaver. 2023 was actually a record year. We hit a record for our full match for um, FERS participants at 86.8%, and for BRS participants, uh, 84.9%. That's particularly notable for the BRS participants since they just started in January of 2018. That program just started. And it really shows the um, magic of auto-enrollment, right? If you auto-enroll somebody at 5%, um, and that's going to continue to march up for both both populations, but particularly for BRS. And then we've hit a record in terms of the number of participants who um, have some money in Roth. We've got about 2.5 million participants, or 36% of our participant base has some Roth money. I guess if someone isn't careful, they could have a higher income when they retire if they put a lot away in the TSP. It's well, fit- you can put a lot away. And if you're putting, especially if you're you're young and you're starting, if you do uniform services, for example, and you keep your money in Roth, then yeah, when you take your money out, it's, it is tax, uh, tax-free. And so that's really the benefit of Roth, and it's particularly the benefit of Roth for any of our younger participants. And Kim, you'd mentioned that, you know, auto enrollment is a really big uh, indicator, really important way to kind of make sure that people are contributing a lot of their earnings towards the TSP. I know that in 2020, TSP changed the auto enrollment rate. So those who are contributing less than 5%, what are the ways that you try to uh, encourage or help participants get that matching, the full matching rate from the government? We have a number of outreaches. And in fact, we have a social scientist on staff. And one of the things that she's really focused on, she gave a presentation to the board last last month, was um, various ways we've tested messaging as to what resonates most with people and what drives behavior. And so um, we are constantly testing various messages. We'll, we'll, we'll take a group of people and keep a control group who get no email and then test various messages, see which one drives action, and then use that message for a larger group. Um, and that's always something that we are looking at as to ways that people who aren't contributing the full 5% are aware of the benefits for them of of doing that. But we're also aware that people have other expenses, right? There's, there is life, there's food, there's rent, all of those things. And that, that sometimes gets in the way of saving for retirement. Well, give us an example of a type of message that you tested and that resulted in some change. Well, there's several different things. For example, as our social scientist calls it, it's temporal reframing. In other words, do you want to start saving $5 a day, $35 a week, or $150 a month? All of those are essentially, of course, the same total amount, 
but $5 a day was four times more effective and it eliminated gaps across um, income levels. So a lower income person was as likely to respond to that as a higher income person. For example, for someone earning your amount of money, $50,000, 5% is about $7 a day. That was one. And what we found was that dollars per day was slightly better than leaving money on the table, which has been the standard message that all financial institutions use. And that um, was about just a couple, 3% higher than the, the other ones we tested. But the average increase was about $80 a month. And so by age 65, that would be an extra $40,000 um, in their TSP account. So again, there's any number of ways to try and attack that that specific population. But we also look at other people, you know, who are getting closer to retirement. You know, did you know that you can make up catch up contributions? There's any number of, of messaging that we do for our participants to try and get them prepared for a comfortable retirement. And will you plan on, say, testing different messages across different age groups, such as as the boomers age out, you know, that message about catch up versus the millennial and the Generation Z, the really young ones coming into government? Yes, all of those. And what we find, and it's not surprising, we find this with our financial wellness, our participant satisfaction, that younger participants are are less engaged with the TSP in general. And that's not surprising. I mean, 21-year-olds can't imagine retirement. You know, they can't imagine being 30, let alone retiring sometime in their 60s. So trying to engage with that particular group is challenging, again, for for everybody, simply because they're focused on on other, other issues. You know, Kim, on the other end of things, uh, I know that one really popular topic with the TSP is how many millionaires are in the program. Do you have the latest numbers for that? I do. As of the end of calendar year 2023, there are 116,827 millionaires and they have been contributing to the TSP for an average of 28.91 years. And I would contrast that with last year, uh, 2022, there were 76,888 millionaires, and they had been contributing for 29.5. And of course, the difference between those two is largely driven by the performance of the stock market. The stock market in 2023, especially um, toward the end of the calendar year, really took off. Um, there was about a 25% return for the C fund, a 25% return for the S fund. And so that's what drove the numbers of millionaires up for calendar year 2023. And I guess from that number that you mentioned, the, there's 40,000 more, 50,000 more at the end of last year than there were at the end of the year before, is that a lot of people were really close to just that million mark. Whereas that, the- that is, yes, it's always the case that people sort of um, trend upward. We're always adding new participants. So the number of participants who have less than 50,000 will always be a growing number. But then 
presumably people move up the ladder, so to speak, um, both up and down in relation to savings and re- and the, the market returns. Let's talk about some of the specific funds. The iFund had some changes and alterations. Let's review what went on there. The board in November approved a change to the iFund benchmark. And the benchmark um, is is what the the fund follows, what we track. So as many people know, the the C fund follows the S&P 500. People are familiar with that. The I fund gets a little more esoteric. We currently um, track what's called the MSCI EFA, which is Europe, Australasia, and Far East. Not easy to say. The one we're moving to is that much less easy to say. It's the MSCI All Country World X USA X China X Hong Kong Investable Market Index. So what that does, what the new index does for us is it adds emerging markets without Hong Kong or China, given the X's, um, and it adds in um, Canada and it also adds in some small cap stocks in developed markets. So all in all, we go from about 800, uh, 800 stocks to about 5,600 stocks. Um, and we're covering now about 90% of the non-U.S. Um, equity market. So it expands uh, your ability. It expands the ability to get returns while not greatly increasing risk. Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Tune in to FedLife next Wednesday at 1 p.m. to hear the entire conversation. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can 
bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. 
and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.